I was reading this past week, and the beginning of a chapter that I was reading, um, the book is called Mastery. And the beginning, there's, in every chapter, there's this quote. And I don't remember the quote exactly, but the image is this. When you have to get something done, think of it like chopping down a tree. It could be a big tree, it could be a small tree. You may not get it on the first whack, but time after time of hitting this tree, eventually it will fall. It takes persistence, it takes time, and it takes discipline. The image I, I bring this to you is because we're in chapter, what, 7 of Romans. You know, and we said we're going to go through the book of Romans, and I understand it's taken, I don't know, 15, 17, 18 weeks. And so this image of the tree just keeps coming up to me, just chopping it down little by little, little by little. One of the things that you'll find is when we read some of the scripture reading, it's not always going to match up to what we're reading. And the reason for that is because on a Sunday or Monday, when I come up with a text and I email it to Jen to get to the people that need to get it, that's what I plan on preaching. But as always happens when you start working on a sermon, you try to chew too much with too many verses, and what ends up happening is you can only do a few verses at a time to do this justice. So we, I ask for your patience as we kind of continue to go through this. Um, but this morning's teaching for me has been one that has been extremely um, relevant and timely. So as we jump into this, I ask that you bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the witness of your word. And we pray now that you would just silence all of the distractions in our hearts and in our minds. That all those things that are just kind of swirling around, that you would just silence them for the next few moments. So that as we dig deep into your word, that your Holy Spirit would actually draw truth to us. Transform us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, Paul begins chapter 7 of Romans. And remember, most of our sermons I think are online, so sometimes I'll refer to something. You can just go back and check. Um, I think usually we have them up every week. But Paul begins Romans in chapter 7. And he gives an analogy. He gives a story of a husband and a wife. And he says, if a husband and a wife divorce, the wife in the first century is not allowed to marry again until her husband dies. And if she does marry again, then she's considered an adulteress, which is bad, which in the first century had all sorts of other implications. I mean, there was one passage in the Old Testament that a woman who was caught in adultery could be, could be stoned to death. Of course, it was a different time with a different understanding of women and the value of women. Women were property. Um, I don't know that if we ask any woman here today if she's property, she would agree. And so we learn, and God continues to reveal and helps us to understand. But that's how he starts this Romans chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. And he's been talking about the law, and he's been talking about Jesus, and he's been talking about what we should and what we shouldn't do. He's been creating this, this theology of what it means to kind of be submitted to God. And out of nowhere, he throws in this, these three verses about marriage and divorce. Now, what all the commentators have said is he's not actually talking. This isn't a theology for marriage and divorce. He's not endorsing, and he's not condemning this way of things. The point that he's trying to make is that the woman is only free to remarry when her ex-husband dies. She is only able to move on when something dies. And so Paul uses this illustration to set up another part of where he is going with this book and with this theology. 
Because he will say in just a few moments, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 7, verse 4, he's going to build upon what we said last week, where we have died with Christ, and we have been resurrected with Christ into the newness, or a new kind of life. So, if you have your Bibles, or even if you don't, you can read up front with me. Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says, and of course he's talking about the wife being able to marry only after the husband dies. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul states what is. He says, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, I know some of you want to say, well, you see, that's why I don't have to do anything the Bible says in the Old Testament, any of the Ten Commandments. That's why I don't have to go to church on Sabbath, because he says we died to the law. But if you were here last week, you will remember that it's not saying that you no longer have to live by the moral code that we find in Scripture. But what he's saying is that the consequence of this death that comes with breaking the law, you no longer have to die that eternal death. So he states what is. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. And then he carries out that implication, so that you may belong to another. Remember this imagery of the woman who can only remarry once the husband has died. Remember, I'm not saying that that's what it should be. I'm saying that's what he's the analogy that he's using. And so he's using that and he says, you can only truly belong to Christ if you have died with him to the law. And then he states again what is, to him from the dead, Jesus has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. This isn't just about you are free to do whatever you want. It's you have been forgiven. The penalty of your sins have been paid. And now you can belong to Christ wholeheartedly. And now you can bear fruit. So the question that this raises is, does this release you from living the way of Jesus? Does this release you from following the teachings of Jesus? Does this release you from having to live by any moral code in the Old Testament? So my answer to that is, let's find out. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. And this is what I wrote in my notes. You didn't die to the law or the consequence of the law, which is death, just so that you can get a free pass to do whatever you feel like doing. In any kind of relationship, if you are doing whatever you want to do, irregardless or regardless. Is that a word, irregardless? It's not a word, huh? Yeah, but you guys know what I meant. (laughs) You died to the consequence of the law. Not so you can, oh yeah, that's right. If you're in a relationship and you're doing what you want, regardless of what the other person wants, that's not a very good relationship. So when it comes to our relationship with God, It's not enough to just say, I love you, God, and then live in a way that shows disrespect and dishonor and unglory to this God. But rather, we have been set free from having to follow every little nook and cranny of all the laws because God knows that it is impossible for you to do that. And as you go and you live and you try to model your life after the way of Jesus, I kind of think of it more of, have you ever been to the circus or to one of these fairs and they have the, is it trapeze, the guys that are, and girls that are swinging from the ceiling? I always wonder, what happens? What do they feel when they fall? And this last year, I was able to go to one of these circuses and I was able to see one of them fall. And, I mean, there was a safety net. 
They were fine. They fell gracefully. But that's kind of the image I get of what it looks like when I'm trying to do all of the right things all of the time. Not so that I could earn salvation, but so that I could thank God and live in honor and glory for him. And when we fall, we're like those trapeze artists who fall gracefully into the safety net of grace. Because without that safety net of grace, we would live or die this eternal death. And so we keep asking, so then why does Paul say that we are dead to the law? He didn't say you no longer have to follow it. He just simply says that the consequence, the death that must be paid for breaking the law, you no longer have to pay because it was paid in the person of Jesus. Now, really quickly, in the Old Testament, in this, this, this system, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was there was a temple. And it functioned very different than the way churches function today, extremely different. But the people, the Israelites, would come and they would be forgiven when they would bring an animal to sacrifice. So a lamb, you would place your hand on the animal and you would, in a sense, transfer your sins to that animal. And once it was sacrificed, then you would be forgiven. That's a very basic understanding of it. But when was the last time you sacrificed an animal in order to get forgiveness? Anyone? No. We don't do that anymore because the Old Testament was always pointing towards the perfect sacrifice of what Jesus' death on the cross would be. The Bible talks about, and John the Baptist actually in the book of John chapter 1 calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53 verse 4 through 9 talks about Jesus being led like a lamb to the slaughter absorbing the sins of all the earth, of all the world. He says the iniquities. And by doing so and by laying down his life, he gives us forgiveness. Because it would be impossible for us to live up to every single law in the Old Testament. So you have been set free. And here's what I say. You can go on living with the view that your effort in keeping the law is earning God's favor and trying to make sure that you get salvation, but all that will happen is that you will get frustrated and angry with yourself when you sin. How many of you have ever kind of taken an inventory of your life at the end of the day? And you have to, we kind of got into this um, habit of praying and asking God to forgive us for the sins. It's impossible to remember everything that we do because the Bible teaches us that even our thoughts sometimes are sinful. And so what we find is that we could go on living, trying to live up to every single law, but all that's going to do is make us upset and angry. Or you can live in such a way where the law, mostly the Ten Commandments, does inform how you interact with God and with others. And if you want to take it a step further, you can read the Gospels and read what Jesus says about the Ten Commandments and see how Jesus explains them and expounds them to like the tenth degree. You see, because if we just follow the Ten Commandments, that's easy. A lot of us can say, well, we worship God on the Sabbath, and I'm not stealing, and I'm not committing adultery, and I'm not all that. But if we really want to be serious followers of Jesus, I would encourage you as you're reading through your one-year Bible to look at what Jesus says about the Ten Commandments, and then I think we can all be humbled. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we will see that we are probably guilty of breaking all of the laws that Jesus talks about without even knowing it. The point is that if we're just trying to earn favor in God's eyes by being good, 
we're only going to be disappointed. However, on the other hand, if we are thankful for the sacrifice that Christ has given us, for the sacrifice that he has done by forgiving you of your sins, then you are free to live in such a way where you can honor and give glory to God in all that you do. So I'm going to get into those specifics. Philippians chapter 3, right? So we're going from Romans to Philippians, and we're going to see how the Bible kind of teaches us what it looks like to live this life that is dead to the law, but alive to Christ. Paul's ta- Paul in, is writing a letter to the Philippians, and he's talking about people who are living as enemies of the cross. He says, For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now, and, th- and I've put a couple of verses together. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you, even with tears, that their end is destruction. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This imagery that your citizenship is in heaven. That's a powerful, powerful statement. Now, you can be, let me give you, because it's also kind of hard, because it's like, no, I don't, I've never been there. How can I be a citizen of there? So I'm trying to come up with an analogy that would work. Now, most of us, a lot of us here, may be citizens of the United States. And we all go on vacation to different places at different times. You could be a, a citizen of the United States and travel and live in another country in the world. And you would still be a citizen of the United States. Now, when you go to that country, it doesn't mean that you get to strip yourself of everything that makes you a U.S. citizen. It's not that easy. It's a part of who you are. And so you bring to this other place a part of who you are, your culture, the way you dress, the way you talk, the slang that you use, the things that you try to find to eat. So even though you're a citizen of the United States, you could go to another country and still be a citizen of the United States, even though you are living somewhere else. You don't lose that. And I think when we think of and we talk about being a citizen of heaven, the question that kind of comes up is, what would it look like to be a citizen of heaven but live in a place that isn't heaven? How could you live in such a way where people could see that your citizenship is from somewhere other than the way things are here? The last time I was in Mexico, you know, I just, I'm a Mexican, I'm Mexican-American, I'm a U.S. citizen, whatever, but of Mexican descent. And I thought I'd fit in, right? I look Mexican, I dark skin, I'm short, I look like an Indian, and I speak Spanish. <laughs> and it's funny because my cousin that I had spent most of my time when I was there, she said, you stick out like a sore thumb in Spanish. She said that in her own way. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, we can tell. Like, every, you, you're not from here. I'm like, what are you talking about? Of, of course I'm from here, you know? Of course I'm, you know... Mexican. She goes, yeah, you're Mexican and you can speak the language, but you're not from here and everyone can see it. She was joking. She was like making fun of me. It wasn't a good thing. <laughs> Perhaps living in this world is a lot like that. Perhaps we can live like citizens of heaven in this world, which means that you make Jesus the ruler of your heart. Here what it says is that if you're an enemy of the cross, then you're not living like a citizen of heaven. And so the question that we have to ask is, well, what does it look like to be an enemy of the cross? Now, what's the opposite of an enemy? An ally. So if you're the opposite of an enemy, then you're an ally of the cross. And for us to be 
living lives that give honor and glory to God, then we must not live as enemies of the cross, but we must live as allies of the cross. Nowadays, we use the cross and you know, we hang it in our offices, we have it in our homes, we have it in our churches. The cross has become this symbol of sacrifice of Jesus. But sometimes we forget that the cross was a Roman execution tool. The cross was bitter and ugly and gross and cold and painful. But what it means for us today is something so much different. And yet it means the same. For you to be an ally of the cross, or another way of saying it, to be in cahoots with the cross of Christ, is that you represent to the world what Jesus was like. Jesus was full of forgiveness. Up until the point of his death, Jesus even says, Father, forgive these Roman soldiers, because they don't even know what they're doing. Jesus was generous. Jesus was unselfish. Jesus lived a life that was surrendered to God. So to be an ally of the cross, to be an ally with Christ, to live in what Paul is saying, the newness of life, isn't saying you're free to do whatever you want. It's saying that you are now free from not having to face that ultimate death at the end. You are now free from not having to pay the penalty of the sin. For God has paid that for you, but now you are free to live as a witness of Christ in this world. For Jesus, the cross meant that he had to submit to God 100% and submit to the cause and the purpose to the bitter end so that you would have life and have it more eternally. Because at any point, Jesus could have said, no, forget it. Remember, Jesus could have said, no, these people are not worth it. They don't deserve it. They're going to keep on sinning even after they profess their faith in me. They're going to keep on sinning after baptism. Jesus could have just said, forget it. Now, that may be shocking to some of you. And in some ways, Jesus tried to get out of it when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's like, Father, if there's any other way, let this happen. Remember, this wouldn't be the first time in all of Earth's history that God said, forget it. For those of you who are reading your one-year Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, the Bible tells us, it says, that the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on earth, and it grieved him to his heart because of all of the sin and violence and bloodshed. Jesus could have given up on us, and he didn't. He went all the way to the bitter end. And so for you to be an ally of the cross is to live in such a way that Jesus lived, where you love those who don't deserve to be loved, where you forgive those who you would rather not forgive, where you are generous to those who you feel don't deserve it, where you live unselfishly and you serve everyone you come in contact with. You know, I know that there has been some talk sometimes and that the way I've presented some of these lessons, some of these teachings have been almost like you can do whatever you want. And my hope is that you would understand that that's not at all what I meant. Because if you truly understood what I meant or what I, what I believed in my heart, you would know that the Christianity that I understand is one that is so much harder than just keeping the Ten Commandments. Christianity is hard. I don't always like to forgive. I don't always like to love. I don't always want to be generous. I seldomly want to be generous. 
Christianity and following Jesus is hard because it requires you to die to your selfish needs and selfish wants and selfish desires. That's the hardest of all of them. In a sense, to die to your personhood and say, Father, may your will be done and may you shape me into the person that you need me to be so that I may be a witness to you. And and Jesus goes on to say, these are more practical things. Remember this week I said I'm going to give you things to do. So Jesus would go on to say, we're talking about what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. And Jesus would go on to say, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. I hope you're asking this question. What in the world does all of this have to do with Romans chapter 7, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7? This is the point. That when Paul talks about living a life that is living for Christ and belonging to Christ and the newness of life, is that you are now living a life that is giving witness to the kingdom of God everywhere. Because when Jesus announces the kingdom of God in the book of Matthew, he's not talking about heaven. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, he is saying, it is here, it has come near because I am here. And as believers and followers of Christ, any time that you allow Jesus to be the ruler of your life, in your interactions with people, in your business associations, at school, at work, with your husband, with your wife, with your children, any time that you allow God to be ruler of your life, the kingdom of God is present. Because he wasn't talking about the future. What all of this has to do with Romans is that Romans gives you the forgiveness, he pays the debt, but it doesn't mean that now you can do whatever you want. Instead, he says, where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And, you know, we have a way of being in this, in this country. It's the only one I can speak of because it's the only place I've ever lived. Where we always think of more and more and more and consume and consume and consume. And if I work just a few more hours, I'll get a few more hours of overtime. And then I can have this and then I can buy that. And it just everything becomes about the good old dollar in this country. And yet what Jesus says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be. And if the things of this world are all that really matters to you, then you may have them, but that's it. And it'll be empty. I looked at a list online of some of the things that depreciate or that rust easily. Cars, the moment you drive them off off of the um, parking lot at the lot, at the dealer, they instantly lose value. That car you've been saving up for, that car that has the, the GPS and all of the technology and all of that stuff, and you've been saving up for that big down payment, or maybe you, the moment you leave the parking lot, it's already beginning to rust. That house that you bought that was supposed to be that fixer-upper, it's already beginning to rust. Computer and technology, jewelry, food. <laughs> we spend so much money on food. And we eat it, and then it's gone. And then it becomes waste. (laughs) So much. See, if the scripture is not informing you to live in such a way that you forget about all the stuff that you thought mattered once, 
and you begin to live a life that is submitted to Christ, it won't be easy. It will actually be hard. And there may be all sorts of things that you have to say no to in this world. There may be all sorts of things that you have to just let die in your life. And sometimes that's the hardest. And then I'll end with this passage in Matthew 6. Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything you need will be given to you. So when we go back to that first passage that says you have died to the law so that you can now belong to another, to the one who was raised from the dead so that you may bear good fruit. The good fruit is about learning to submit in such a way where you live as an ally of the cross, where you make what was important to Jesus important to you, where you seek first God's kingdom everywhere you go, and where the things of this earth will slowly fade away. And I'll finish with this. The only way you can live a life that truly gives honor and glory to God is one where you submit to him daily and throughout the day. And so for those of you who are reading the one-year Bible, you'll probably notice that it's already making a difference in your life. I've heard people already say, I can't believe how easy it is to read this Bible. And that's why I'm thankful to Ron for having brought this to, to our attention and to this church. And if you haven't gotten one of those Bibles and you're like, oh, it's already too late, it's not too late, it's numbered. You'll just finish 10 days later, or you can catch up. And if you want a Bible, we will, we will order more Bibles because we believe that the moment that you open up Scripture, that God speaks to us in such a way that he allows it to transform our lives. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, um, the teachings that we find in Scripture are oftentimes hard for us, Lord. Because as you know, we live in the paradigm of this world. We live by the rules of this world. We live by the rules of this culture. My prayer for us is that as we continue to delve deeper into Scripture, and as we continue to see what you are trying to teach us, that where we are reluctant to go forward, that you would make it easier for us. That your Holy Spirit would transform us and shape us. And that we would be the kind of people that as others experience life with us, that they would say that we are truly followers of Jesus. That we would only bring honor and glory to you and that we would not embarrass you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.